Hey, thank you for tuning in. So I want to make two quick points before we get started with this conversation with Courtney. Of course, my time with her is limited. And within that time, I wanted to discuss two very important points. One being mental health. One being the charge of conspiracy. So the, the conversation may feel rushed, but I do want you to pay attention to what was said and just try to apply it to your lives. Um, Hopefully this creates a discussion that opens the door for us to to just enlighten each other, learn and figure out how we can try to unravel the situation that that has occurred. So without further ado, Ms. Courtney Benson. Hello. This is Coming Home Coalition. I'm here with Ms. Courtney Benson, Esquire. Um, Ms. Benson is a criminal defense attorney. Um, she has a BA in criminology from USF. She took uh, litigation concentration at West Michigan University. Talk to me a little bit about that. What is litigation concentration? Litigation is when you go into court to fight a suit, to fight any kind of uh, pending action. So litigation is more about being in court, thinking on your feet, uh, how to fight a case in front of the judge, Um, not just the preparation that goes into it behind the scenes, but how to get a case kind of uh, off of the playbook and onto the playing field. That's how the saying goes. Mm -hmm. So that's what I wanted to focus on. I want to be in court. I didn't want to be a uh, a paper pusher kind of attorney. Well, how does that play in... Uh, uh, let's say, uh, well, just in, in anything, in a trial aspect, how, how does that? Well, you know, every case that we signed as attorneys, we're trained that you are to work every case as if it's going to trial. Mm-hmm. So um, in working a case as if it's going to trial, you've got to make sure that you gather all of the evidence that's out there. You've got to think a little bit creatively to think about what evidence may exist, especially in a defense position like me, because I don't get generally an entire law enforcement file from their investigation, I'm kind of at the mercy of the state for them to give me the materials that they have. Um, so I have to think outside of the box and look at the discovery and the evidence that I have and say, well, based on this, what else could be out there that the state might try to drop on me on the eve of trial? Um, mm-hmm. And then try to call the state and make sure that if they have it, I get a copy of it. And if they don't have it, that they say so in writing. So that if it comes to trial and they somehow produce it, then I can say, wait a minute. I've done my due diligence and this didn't exist prior to today. Um, It's just making sure that you leave no stone unturned, essentially. Mm, Okay. So, Ms. Benson's office is 1101 6th Avenue, West Suite 104 here in Bradenton, Florida. Her contact is 941-747-4440. And I want to interrupt you real quick. I want to put my cell phone number on there, too, because I think it's very important for my clients to be able to reach me. Um, You know, I know that I'm not needed just during the hours of 9 to 5, that it's very important for me to be kind of a lifeline for a lot of my clients as they go through some of the hardest obstacles they've ever faced. So I pride myself on making myself available as often as I can for my clients. So if and when you need me uh, outside of office hours, my cell phone number is 941 seven two five nine four five seven and it's never bothered to call you can always call text leave me a message it's locked down it's confidential and privileged and i will get back to you if i'm not immediately available um, as soon as i can Mm. okay so courtney tell me where did you go to school how did you grow up oh let's see how did i grow up so uh, i i grew up in a traditional four-unit family you know i had mom dad i have an older sister um I was the youngest, am the youngest, and we were just raised, just a blue-collar family, you know, just hard workers, and um, we were a very close-knit family. I lived close to my extended family, and, you know, we did holidays and gatherings and birthdays together. It was a pretty pretty good childhood. My dad was a musician. Um, My mom was a mortgage broker, and about my early teenage years, uh, my parents got divorced. My mom turned to narcotic abuse. Um, And my father kind of took a step back from a fatherly role at that time because things were just a mess. I think he was finding himself. My mom was 
uh, probably trying to find her footing again, and my sister had was about to get married. Um, so I was essentially taking care of my mom throughout her drug days uh, as a teenager onward. And, you know, a lot of times with the help of my sister or my other family members, and sometimes without. So in the course of all of that, my mom got arrested for a fraud offense. Um, it was four counts of fraud, felony fraud, mm. and that was for stealing checks from a family member. And um, she was sentenced to jail time for that. So she did some jail time, uh, which caused me to be homeless. Um, I did stay with my dad for a little while, uh, and then I eventually moved out on my own immediately after turning 18 and uh, have stayed on my own ever since. But throughout the course of my mom's you know, criminal conduct and her sentencing, she did uh, serve some jail time and then she was sentenced to probation to follow. And while she was serving probation, she continued to use and I had no other way to assure her safety except to keep a close contact with her probation officer and uh, and that's what I did. And so that caused her to be violated on probation quite a few times and uh, she had public defender and it was I just saw the ugly side of the criminal justice system from the defense position and from the position of a, a family member that has somebody involved in the system. Um, and I, I know what it feels like to feel helpless and feel like nobody's listening and you've got no way to kind of penetrate the the veil of the court to get in and say, this is what I think needs to be done. This is how we can serve justice in this case. Um, and I just felt very helpless and I felt like I didn't have a voice. And, um, and I've always been a problem solver. So I decided to go to law school just to see how far in it I could get. And uh, I essentially became a career student. I worked the entire time, you know, sometimes two and three jobs at a time, mm. and uh, went all the way through law school working. Um, I found a, a position as an intern with a great criminal defense attorney, and he trained me all the way up. And um, and eventually I, I did pass the bar and got sworn in, and so here we are. Mm, that's awesome. And how old are you? 32. 32. And now this is your firm. This is my firm now, yes. Yeah, so my mentor, um, his name is Charlie Britt. He trained me for about eight years, and then he decided that he wanted to move out of Manatee County where we practice, and he moved down to uh, Key West. So when he did that, he kind of shopped the firm around to see if there was anybody that wanted to buy the firm. Nothing really came through quick enough, and his start date for his new position was steadily approaching. So I said, look, the clients know me. Uh, the clients like me. I know the cases. I, I know, you know, our peers, our colleagues in this area. Um, let me take over, and I'll wrap up all of your open cases for you, and I'll just take over the firm and keep it going. And um, after a little bit of back and forth, that's eventually what we did. So he left in January. I, at the time, had a, a four-year-old son and a six-month-old daughter, mm. and I just dove in, you know, two feet, jumped right into it, and Thankfully, I've got some great staff here that help me uh, stay afloat, and you know we make sure all of our cases are are our first priority, and our clients are like family to us. So it's been great from January to now. Here we are, the end of September, um, even in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, which you know nobody was prepared for or expecting. Uh, thankfully, we have the support of our community and uh, our cases and our results and our reputation, and it's been great. We've been just steadily moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned your father. Your father was a musician. Your father played drums, mm -hmm, that's um, right. and uh, he was he was very very good. Yeah. Um, and there was a point in his life where he had to make a decision between his music and family. That's right. That was uh, that was actually before my time a little bit. My sister's six years older than me, and actually at the time that my mom was uh, delivering my sister, my father was on tour. Mm -hmm. So he was not in the state. He had to, um, I don't know where he was, somewhere in the Midwest, and they were at a show. He had to finish his show and then get on a bus and come all the way back here to be here for her birth. Um, he even narrowly missed it, but you know, got here as quick as he could. And um, and still kind of had one foot in and one foot out, I think, until shortly before I came along. And my mom said, "Look, we're gonna have two kids. You can't you can't keep doing this. You've got to do one or the other." And it was really, I think, probably heartbreaking for him. But he did it. He he was he was with us. He was a great dad. And then he started working for a phone company, and you know, he just 
that, that led us into our blue collar lifestyle there. And he still plays. He, he still, still plays. Yeah, he yeah. plays all the time. Um, he's in a band right now called the Embry Brothers. It used to be called Wiley Fox. Mm -hmm. They do record some studio music, and um, he's phenomenal. He teaches my son how to drum. My five-year-old now knows how to drum, and he has a drum set in his bedroom, uh, for better or worse. Passing to, the torch. He's passing the torch. That's right. Yep. Thanks to Grandpa. Yeah, is, is he taken to it? Oh yeah, he loves it. Yeah, he's great. It's it's. Well, funny. He's, a, he's a boy, so he loves just beating on stuff. That's right, now, right. right. Yeah, and he has that showmanship. Yeah. So. Yeah, I know he does. So, how do you think, like, you know, growing up, what like was drugs, you know, prevalent in front of you as a child? To an extent, yes. You know, um, just the party, just the music life. Yeah. That yeah, the music element that is what you were brought up in. Oh yeah, I was brought up, you know, in bars with my dad setting up and tearing down his drums, you know, or at his band practice, just hanging out in garages while they practiced before their upcoming shows. And um, yeah, I saw I saw quite a bit as a kid that I didn't realize wasn't normal you know I just kind of thought this is how people grow up it's, it's no big thing I'm with my dad I'm with my mom whatever we're doing what we got to do mm -hmm. um never thought anything y'all loved it. each other oh yeah we were a very close family yeah. yeah we still are to this day you know despite everything we've all been through together we're we're thick as thieves you know family over everything no matter what so um oh I apologize that's my oh, go ahead there we go all right so your mom, she um, she was opioids. Yes. Right. And you've had uh, experiences with opioids, you know, as a childhood growing up, and all of these things. You know, it's crazy out there the way that, and especially now, you know. But you had once shared a story with me about, um, I guess it was your best friend, right? But. Was that opioids? Remember the story that you had shared with me about the that was the kid was tripping out on, on something and. He, oh, I do. Um, remember and and he ended up. Took a ruger. Yes, he took a ruger. Uh, so what happened about that? Because because you and him was like best friends. Oh, we right? grew up together as kids in diapers. I mean, he was a neighborhood friend of mine, and um, he, I moved away. You know, when I was eighteen, I moved. When, when was this? This was six years ago or so uh -huh. it's been some years he's he's made it through the court process now and actually has been sentenced to prison um oh he's alive oh he's alive i yeah. thought he was dead no he's alive and he, how do you live through that uh schizophrenia schizophrenia he but didn't he drill something through his he head drilled a ruger which is a circ a spiral drill bit through his skull in front of police during a standoff and he lived. He put a drill to his head. A Ruger, a hand drill. A hand drill. Hand drill, not a electric drill. A hand drill. drill. Yeah, hand drill. Oh my goodness, that's yeah. different because with the drill, you have to actually just pull the trigger. But a right. hand a drill, hand you got to. You got to crank. You got to crank with that force. With force. Yeah, and it takes time. And that is a perfect example of debilitating mental health. And that is what he was experiencing. He is a twin, um, and. He, I don't know if it is something maybe in the twin DNA or something between him and his brother, but at, at some point, him and his brother just went totally opposite directions. Mm -hmm. And the one brother, from what I've heard, you know, through the neighborhood and the stories, that he, he had you, a bad trip. You was around, like, when they split. Yes. You, you knew both of the brothers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, were, we grew up together as kids, you know, and then through high school, growing up teenage years, um, you know, then you start finding your different groups of friends, likes and dislikes, and... And that's when they split, and one went one way, and the other went the other way, and did got into PCP and drugs, and got had a really bad trip. And I don't believe it was just one. I think it was probably compounded by at least a second use, and it, it triggered some severe schizophrenia in him. And as a lot of us know, with schizophrenia, um, it comes with some medication noncompliance. So he didn't want to take his medication either. So his symptoms were, they were just rampant, you know, and it, it's unfortunate, but it completely took him over. And that's what it led to. He, he was charged with uh, two counts of second degree murder. Like, <clears throat> when you say took, it took him over, like, what, what do you mean? I don't think that he had the ability to exercise free thought. Uh, how old was he at this time? 20, 23. 23 years 20, old. Yeah, he was two, early 20s which is typical onset for male schizophrenia, you know, early 20s. And um, it, it, that's what happened. He, 
he was not recognizable. That's what I mean by it completely took him over. Physically, mentally, verbally, not recognizable. He was not the same unreachable. person. Unreachable. Yeah, totally unreachable, disconnected, almost catatonic. How does that happen? I mean, how does it go from like a, a, a childhood, like you say, a childhood boy that you know, that you're playing with, mm -hmm. you're going to his house, you know, you guys are doing whatever, yeah. to, to him making a, a left turn, like you say, yeah. into, into a realm of, of schizophrenia, like, and, and you're just completely unreachable. Like, how does that happen? I, I wish I had the answer to it because I come across it fairly frequently that it's a, it's a bad set of cards. It's chemistry. Um, I don't know that it's environmental. I, I think it's chemical, you know? You think it is? So you think that he was actually born yes. with some sort of, okay, so if that's the case, then how come, how come it wasn't at a sooner age? How come it wasn't? Well, that's, you know, traditionally onset of schizophrenia happens in early adulthood. That's just when the symptoms start to present themselves. Um, I don't know for what reason, but generally it's triggered by a traumatic event. And I don't know what triggered his in this case, um, but that's... Was there that's, anything going on inside of the home? Yeah, I'm sure there was. I mean, I know that he had some extended family living with him. He mm. was living with his mom. Mm. Um, his criminal allegations related to some of his extended family. So, you know, and I know the family, and I know that they can be volatile. You know, we all have our little bits of dysfunction, and I know the family. So it could, it certainly could have been something traumatic that triggered him either on that occasion or previously that just let him down the, off the cliff and it's a shame and, and I believe now that he is in custody and hopefully being medicated he seems to have more of his intellect back now but that's fleeting with schizophrenia it can come and go at any time because if, if and when he decides to stop taking his medication um, you're back to square one I've been around these people. Yeah. I've been around, I mean, I don't know to that extent, you know, but I have been around individuals that if they miss their medication for two or three days, like they, but they don't even realize that they're slipping off. Right. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, like the one guy, you know, he's, him and I are sitting there having this conversation one day and it's a normal conversation him and I are having. And then all of a sudden, you know, he looks at me. He just looks at me over his shoulder. Now you're talking about a guy that's, I don't know, he was maybe like 6'6", six, six, like 260 pounds, mm. you know, and this guy was a violent offender, you mm. know what I mean? So, he, and he looks at me and I could see the confusion in his eyes, oh. you see? So once I seen that confusion, I knew that something was off kilter, mm -hmm. right? So he's like, did you hear that? And I'm like, hear what, man? <laughs> you know, yeah. you're tripping. What are you talking about here? There's nothing, what are you talking about? Mm. So he's like, did you hear that? I mean, it's like, there's somebody outside of the door and they said that they're going to jump me when I come out. Oh, bless his heart. Right? So now when I hear that, I'm like, man, you're tripping, man. Have you taken your meds? You know, have you taken your meds? You know, no, I haven't taken. So, but the point is, is that he, 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 he didn't even realize that he had slipped off. Mm -hmm. You see? It's real. It is as real as my hands in front of me to these men, to these people. So, it really is. So this guy, what, what, what's his name? Um, I really want to know how the hell you take a, a crank and really crank it into. And Can we talk about this? I don't think so. You don't think so? It's public record. Okay. It is public record, but it, I, with that, with me not releasing his name. Um, but not, not releasing well because name. with me not releasing his name that means that, they, that nobody can go confirm that it's public record because they don't know who he is so I'm just talking about facts of this case okay well let's not talk about facts let's just talk about hypothetically what somebody's able to do yeah when they're you know under under this influence or, or they're in a, a schizophrenic rage I guess um, I have I have clients and uh, stories of people connected to me that do not feel physical pain when they are in this kind of state. I have um, experienced men ha who have circumcised themselves unmedicated in a schizophrenic fit without noticing it. Um, people are very quick to self-mutilate because of the voices and, and the auditory hallucinations and even the visual hallucinations. And it seems that the hallucinations and the illness takes over any executive function of the brain to the extent that it will further whatever it has to do by any means necessary. So if 
if the schizophrenic hears voices that are telling them that they need to do X, Y, and Z, no matter what they have to do to get to X, Y, and Z, they're going to do it to resolve that, to resolve that demand. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. So they, I don't think they have any executive function of their brain whatsoever. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an expert on this, but from what I have seen, at least, that's what I have experienced. There's nothing that it would not drive them to do. There, mm-hmm. I could, I could say... I've almost, I mean, I have, based on what I've seen, I'm confident that there's not really much that they could stop themselves from accomplishing. Well, I mean, obviously not. I mean, but, you know, the little, the little that I learned, I mean, this, this, this gentleman obviously, you know, took somebody's life and then um, tried to take his in a, in a, in a very obscene way. Oh, yeah. You and a hostage I mean? situation. I mean, it went on for hours. I, I'm shocked. I, I didn't know that the guy was still alive. I, yeah. I guess. So is he? Does he have any sort of uh, debilitation from him? No. Cranking a no. I don't drill into his brain. I don't. Thankfully, I don't think he made it far enough to really have any severe damage. Oof, and you know, oof, the brain oof. is an amazing muscle, anyhow, organ because it mm-hmm. can it'll just repair itself. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was young, thankfully, but no, it not to my knowledge, he does not have any lasting effects. So, how many cases would you say, like Eddie? Do you think that you run across, you know, where you feel like these individuals just have some sort of circuitry off? They, they don't, you know, they're, they're, they're committing crimes, you know. Um, this gentleman's crime was because he was... Severely he, mentally ill. He lost touch of, of reality. Right. 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 And now he's, of course, sitting in an institution where he can't do that to somebody else, uh-huh. you know. But how many individuals are we running across that is maybe not as severe as him? Right. Right. That, that have a, 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 a level of mental illness. A, just a, some sort of thought disability, you know, mm-hmm. just some sort of like when you're thinking, when it's time to make a decision to go right or left, there's like a disconnect, right? There's like mm-hmm. a little piece of the bridge got blown up or whatever. Well, you know, it, it depends. Uh, it's almost like how many raindrops are in a cloud, you know, because it's a hard answer to really pin down. Because, you know, if you think about it, what stops somebody from going one way as opposed to another? Could it be mental illness? Likely so. I'd say 10, 15% of my cases have some kind of level of mental disorder that needs to be addressed. And I send many of them to a doctor to have that, you know, fleshed out one way or another, just so I know that that stone has been unturned. I know that there's nothing there that I need to you know, further investigate, but not only could it be a mental illness, but some people just have a, a concrete, you know, lower level of understanding and logical thought and intelligence in that they can't successfully think four and five steps down the road like a lot of other people can. So while sometimes it is mental illness or a thought disorder or personality disorder that leads people to crime, um, in other ways, it just could be a lack of life experience, of um, intelligence, uh, you know, perception there's a lot that goes into it you know a lot a lot of different aspects that could lead somebody into my office sure i mean you know again this is this is always my point you know is is it it always boils down to to our responsibility as parents right and what we are teaching our children moving forward in life right right? Right. but again we're trying to survive Mm -hmm. you know we're trying to figure shit out. You yeah, know? I mean, the babies don't come with a rule book, you know? We don't know how to do it. Well, this. life doesn't come with a rule book, you right. know? And, 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 and the thing of it is, is that life is designed, in my opinion, to to challenge you, like, constantly. Yes. You know, yeah. there is a constant challenge that's going on within you constantly, mm-hmm. right? And I think that life is designed that way. Right. You know, and I think that people aren't really realizing... The easy way is not always the right way. The easy way is not always the right way. Right, and and I agree with that. And I think that's, you know, people don't want to believe that because that's a hard lesson to learn that sometimes in order to do things right, you've got to take the long way around. And in trying to take shortcuts or take the easy way where it challenges us to go outside of that, some people don't have, they can't find that wherewithal in them to rise to the challenge. And so they do take the easy way and that could lead them to a criminal allegation. Um, because they just don't, they can't think of the consequences of that. Or maybe they think I won't get caught. Or, you know, everybody else does it, I can do it too. Um, but, you, yeah, you have to be able to foresee 
the potential aspect consequences of what happens and, and we it's our job as parents I think to teach our kids that too um, but we can't we can't discount the fact that they are their own people too and so I have parents in my office sometimes like I just don't know where I went wrong you know what what led them here and you can't put all that on the parents either because the the children or, or the adult in some cases they're their own person they have their own life experiences and their own thought process so yeah but that's a sacrifice as parents you know when they, and that's to me I don't buy that crap because like when you have kids you know when you have a child you have this child knowing you're supposed to. You're supposed to have this child knowing, like, okay, everything else is on hold. Like, everything. To me, a child is, is your number one investment, mm-hmm. right? Like, nothing else comes in front of that's this child. This is, this is your number one investment. This mm-hmm. is the thing that's going to, to grow and take care of you. Yeah, it's your legacy. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, when it comes, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's like this is the parent's responsibility to, to not only pump this child full of education that's going to help this child survive in life right but to do it honestly with truth Mm -hmm. you see and i think a lot of a lot of the the mental instability that's going on today is the fact that people are growing up and you're you're realizing that everything that you were taught even what your parents were teaching you is not true you know Mm -hmm. for for a lot of the a lot of the you know yeah so but I think something that's important to note there is that if you're going to allow parents to own their children's failures, then you have to allow parents to own their children's successes. And if that's the case, mm. then my parents are responsible for me becoming who I am today. And I don't think that's the truth. I don't. As much as I love my parents and they gave me the fence to back up to the positive environment to grow up in, they gave me a lot of shit too, you know, and I apologize for using that language, but it's true. And the adversity that I faced either through my family or otherwise and the positivity that I faced there have contributed to my path but they don't own it that's mine if I go into court today and I win that's me you know my law degree is me if I would have failed out of law school that's me that's not my parents you know they could do everything in their power to raise a healthy stable successful contributing member of society and I could still be a narcissist I could still be a borderline personality it it's chemical I believe I think that it's it happened it's DNA and it's chemical and it's a it's it's a diagnosis you know and so I, I think that if we allow parents to own all of their children's failures which is a lot that's a lot to put on a parent um, then they also are able to own their children's successes and that discounts their children and their independence you know because I want to believe that I'm making the best children that I can that are going to be amazing adults. But if I, if I don't, I can't own all of that, you know, because it's not just me. They're not only exposed to me. They're exposed to their teachers, their bus driver, the neighbors, their friends at school. You know what I mean? The bullies at school. And I can't control all of that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But all of that gets put into the gumbo that becomes the adult that we see in society. So I think you're right that there is a level that the parents can't just put, you know, say, go forth, kid, I've given you food, water, and shelter, go learn what you need to learn to survive. You have to have a hands-on active role in your child's life and in training them and teaching them. Yeah, but that act, that active role, okay, so, all right, we know that children, right, they mimic everything that they see. This is, they're, they're sponges, right? Mm-hmm. Their brains are working super super overtime oh, yeah. as a child and their eyes are wide open and everything that this child is looking at his brain is up. just registering yeah right it up. the child don't know what the brain is registering right but the brain is absorbing and is processing and is telling the child on uh, how to act and what to do mm-hmm. you see what i'm saying mm-hmm. so within that right there are the little mannerisms that we have in our in, in american society right well probably everywhere but you know from what i've seen mm-hmm. you see our culture in our culture exactly mm-hmm. thank you that you know um just is uh, i don't know if a moral is a strong word you know but they're just there's there's just there's just things that we are teaching our children without even realizing what sure. we're teaching them. Sure, yeah. You, you understand I mean, what I'm saying? Yeah, mom looks in the mirror in the morning getting dressed and say, oh, these pants make me look fat. Her daughter internalizes that. Internalizes that yeah. and how important it is. And when she's now later, 
right? That's a good example. Now she hears her mother. She's in the bedroom, and her mother is just in the closet talking out loud. You yeah. see? Can't wear she's this. Man, it's too like, small. This is too big. My husband, you know, my, yeah, exactly. You know, this, this make my ass look too fat in this right. dress. Right. Right? Yep. Now the little girl hears this. Now, later on, she goes and she's sitting on the couch with her father. Mm -hmm. Now, her father is sitting here and she's watching, he's watching, you know, a commercial comes on. And some beautiful woman is in the commercial. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he makes a comment mm -hmm. about the beautiful woman, mm -hmm. you see. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful woman is a complete opposite of what her mother is. And that, yeah, you see? that confirms And again, that. not right. So now this child is being confirmed. This is what a body image looks like. This is, if I want my father's approval, mm -hmm. this is what I have to look at. Right, and not just my father, but maybe all men, because dad's the first example but it always, of a man. But it always starts with, with yeah. the mother and the father. Yep, and that's the first example that a you child see? has. And, and that's the tiniest example of how our children internalize everything around us. And, and that's why I say we can take responsibility for a lot of that, but we have to understand, too, that we are products of our environment as much as our children are going to be. Mm -hmm. So... If I had a, a crap childhood, I don't have the map to give my children a better childhood, right? I've got to learn that. I've mm -hmm. got to find it somewhere. So I'm going to fail in some aspects of that. Um, but that doesn't mean that I have to own all of it, all of the failure that, is, that results through my child's life becoming an adult. Because I'm a product of my own environment. So that wasn't my fault. That was my mom's fault. You know what I mean? And it, and it keeps going. Where at some point, we've got to stop and say, you know what, Courtney? you it's your fault you mm -hmm. you got yourself in this position for better or worse mm -hmm. so we can't give our children that out too but see but you're in that position because of your parents though you see what i'm saying maybe and until you get to that age right again you're 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 mimicking everything that you see going on inside of your home you're being yeah. taught how to be a woman you're being taught how to how to have a relationship mm -hmm. you're doing all of these things just by seeing the environment right and when you leave you're going to have that same sort of environment because right. this is your comfort zone yeah you see yeah so this is why I'm saying that the parents right it's the parents responsibility when you have this child you know to to make sure that you're not making sexual suggestions about other women mm -hmm. when you know you have a wife in the house you know just these right. to be a to, just to be a moral leader right yeah. for your children yeah make sure you're not fighting with each other in front of the children and yeah talking and, about and i'm money guilty of and, these things oh, as well are, yeah. you know and 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 that's the thing is that we have to do better yes we yeah. have to do better because Constantly. how long do i have you for i gotta go get connor at 2 30 it's about i got 35 more minutes 35 more minutes okay so the, the way that the prison population is now, and I really want to get into conspiracy. Um, so let me use this 30 minutes here to talk about that. So let's shift gears and go into conspiracy. What is the legal definition of conspiracy? Conspiracy is an agreement between two or more persons to commit a criminal offense. That's essentially it, to commit a criminal transaction. What does that mean? That means if you and I come to an agreement today that we're going to go rob the bank up the street and we walk out here and we get in the car, that's a conspiracy. Whether or not we rob the bank, we have come to an agreement. You have to take an overt act in furtherance of the agreement. An overt act. An overt act. Yep. What is an overt act? An overt act is more than a thought. So it will have. it would have to be some kind of articulable action that you took in furtherance of the conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here on Wikipedia it says, in criminal law, conspiracy is an agreement between two or more persons to commit a crime at some time in the future. Right. I mean, didn't they make a movie? What was the movie that um, Minority Report with Tom oh, Cruise? Yeah. Where I they were it. predicting, yeah, they were predicting that people were going to, they came up with some sort of formula that they could predict that people were going to commit crimes. Okay. Right? And they were actually going out and arresting these people before they actually committed the crimes. You see? Yeah. And, and I mean, what you just explained, what I just read, that's... Okay. So, sometime in the future, criminal law in some countries or for some conspiracies may require that at least one overt act yep. be undertaken in furtherance of that agreement right. to constitute an offense. Because we can't be prosecuted for just our thoughts, right? We understand that. 
So if we just come to an agreement, you and I, and we don't do anything about it, we don't do anything to further it, it's not a conspiracy. We're just talking. But if we take any overt act, if I Google the location of that bank, that could be considered an overt act, just that. Uh-huh. So under most U.S. laws, for a person to be convicted of conspiracy, not only must he or she agree to commit a crime, but at least one of the consp conspirators must commit an overt act. That's right. So not everybody in the conspiracy has to commit an overt act. That's right. In Only one person. Yeah, I'm responsible for your actions in a conspiracy. If, as long as those actions are reasonably foreseeable. And if we came to an agreement, any overt act that you take in furtherance of that agreement is reasonably foreseeable to me. So let's put this in, a, in like a natural element, you know. So if... If I'm just sitting in, I'm just sitting on a car, right? Okay, now I'm in a neighborhood, right? I'm in a neighborhood where drugs is prevalent. Mm -hmm. It's prevalent. It's everywhere. This is this is my life. This is my universe. This is my world. I'm in it and I'm around it every day. Yeah. I don't deal drugs, yeah. but it's around me. My uncles, my cousins, everybody around me is either dealing or using. It's everywhere. You live in a high crime right? area. We call that. So I'm sitting on a car one day. Now two dudes come up to me, right, and they ask me, hey. Where can I get some dope? Where can I score some dope? Mm -hmm. Right? Now, I just point. Hey, man, just go two blocks down that way. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm just like, like to me, this is like a dude coming up to me and asking me, where can I get a soda at? Right. Where's the nearest public? Right. Where, where, where can I get a soda at? It's right there in the corner store right there. Right there. They sell sodas. Mm -hmm. You see? Mm -hmm. To me, that's my mentality. Right. Right. Now, when these dude, two dudes who are undercovers and I have no idea, mm -hmm. they come up to me and they ask me, they say, where can I score some dope? Yeah. Man, yeah, two blocks down that way, there's a dude named Johnny. Go holler at him. Yeah. Like, you just shout loud enough on the street, somebody will approach you. Yeah, that's, that's Is that con That's conspiracy. That's it. Yep. Now, now, with that, by me doing that, now these two detectives can go and they can arrest or, or bust the, you know, Johnny, mm -hmm. right? And Johnny has five kilos in his house, mm -hmm. and he has $50,000 cash, mm -hmm. and Johnny's tied to murders. Right. What happens to the guy that was sitting on the car that pointed the detectives to, to Johnny? He would be charged. If, if Johnny is charged in a conspiracy, you would be wrapped right back up in that conspiracy, too. And the thing is, because the soda's legal, the dope is not. Mm -hmm. That's the conspiracy. That's the crime. You can't, you can point somebody to the nearest public and that's not committing a crime. But when you say, here's where you can go get your contraband, your illegal drugs, mm -hmm. that's the conspiracy right then and there. So if Johnny's rat, he's got five kilos but on him, he's got 50 grand. How, how, how am I involved in a conspiracy when I'm just pointing, right? I'm not getting no money from Johnny. I'm not selling no drugs for Johnny. Right. But you helped further the crime. So you could be an accessory. Mm. You could be a co-conspirator. Mm -hmm. And if Johnny's got five kilos and 50 grand and an arsenal of guns on him, if the government can prove that that was reasonably foreseeable to you, because you know Johnny and you know his reputation, you've lived in this neighborhood your whole life, you're responsible for that just as well. Now you can make an act, make a, a motion under the sentencing guidelines that you were a minor participant and you can maybe get some reduction off of your potential sentence that way, that you played a minor role in the offense, that, you know, essentially you were just a middleman. Um, but you're still getting charged, and you're still going to wear this 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 crime. And you got right? higher like lawyer. who who's going to know the difference between that, right? Like right. say say if I'm going to get a job, and they see this crime this this charge, right, mm -hmm. that I've been charged with, are they going to say, oh well, you were just a little guy? No, no, absolutely not. And, so there's no difference. If you're arrested for something and the charge is dropped, and you go apply for a job, and they say, well, wait a minute, you were arrested for grand theft in 2016, you say, yeah, yeah, but that was dismissed. It doesn't matter. It's what, what on you your record. If you are arrested for an offense, especially in Florida, we have a huge public record law. If you are arrested, that is part of your record. Whether or not you are convicted, you were arrested. You were booked. You were printed. You were sent into the jail. So on a job application, it will either ask you, have you ever been arrested for a criminal offense or have you been convicted of a criminal offense? You could easily say, no, I've not been convicted, but have you been arrested? Yes. And then it's up to you to explain to your potential employer or your potential landlord or whoever that the case was dropped. And they would either have to look into that or take your word for it. And that happens all the time. You know, your girlfriend calls and says, hey, he hit me. I want him arrested. And then says, oh, no, just kidding. He didn't hit me. I just wanted him to get out for the night. You got that on your record now. 
How, how many people do you think are aware of, of conspiracy and what it is? Not many. Uh, if I had to guess, 20% of the population, 25 maybe. But yet, conspiracy wipes out neighborhoods. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And it's, it's the hardest charge to beat. The number one Why? hardest charge to beat. Because it's so easy to prove. It's so easy to prove. I mean, you said it. All you gotta do is say, go up the street and see Johnny. It, all it requires is an agreement between two or more persons to commit a crime and one overt act. Okay, so let me, let me say this then. Okay, so now I'm a bartender, right? Okay, now I'm a bartender and I'm in a bar. I'm in a, like a little hole in a dive bar. Nobody comes in. I'm always, you know, I'm always in there. The bar sits across the street from a bank, mm -hmm. right? Now two individuals come into my bar and they sit down at my bar, right? Mm -hmm. Now I could tell that the individuals are wired or whatever, and they're, they're just I could tell that they're off. You mm -hmm. see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So now as a bartender, you know, I go, I, I make them the drink or whatever, but I'm paying attention to these two patrons yeah. that's in my bar because yeah. something don't sit right with me, you right. know? So upon hearing them, right, I hear that they're planning on going and robbing the bank across the street, mm -hmm. you see? Mm -hmm. And um, and it's very detailed. I can hear them murmuring, but I can hear the details of the plan, mm -hmm. you see? Mm -hmm. Now, I notice right out of the corner of my eye as the bartender, right, one of the guys spot me and, and sees that I'm listening to him because the conversation changes or whatnot. But I have collected enough information to know that they're going to rob the bank and they're armed. Okay, now these two knuckleheads, they go across the street, they go in the bank, you know, one guy's superhero, whatever, they're in the process of, of robbing the bank, he's got a pistol in somebody's face, the dude bucks, the guy blows his head off, right, they take off, Done. bam, they leave, okay, now these two knuckleheads get caught, mm -hmm. you see, mm -hmm. now they're trying to, because their plan obviously wasn't to go in and kill nobody, it was just to rob the bank, get money for whatever, you see, now, they get caught, they want to start telling. Hmm. They bring in, now it comes out to the feds that now they were at this bar and they planned their little thing inside of this bar. It all comes back down to the little old man in the bar, hmm. right? The bartender. The bartender. So now I got feds coming into me. What did you hear when these guys were in your bar? Well, see, now that I feel like, you know, these feds are going to come in and they're going to ask me, of course, they're going to act like they're on my side. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So they're going to come in. Hey, listen, you know, this is we know that the, you know that the, the bank was robbed. We're just coming in to ask what you know, blah, blah, blah. You see anything? You see? Help us out. So now I start talking to the Fed without even realizing as to your definition, I'm talking myself into a conspiracy. I don't think so, because you didn't agree. You didn't agree. But right. I didn't call the police and let them know. There's no duty that you do. I mean, uh -huh. morally, yes. But silence is not acquiescence to a criminal uh, agreement, to a conspiracy. I see. Your silence does not mean that you have joined the conspiracy. If you have taken any action to indicate to them that you are going to be a part of this conspiracy, you can withdraw from the conspiracy. And you can withdraw by telling them, I'm withdrawing from this conspiracy. I no longer want to be a part of it. And by taking steps to remove yourself, you are no longer a co-conspirator. You followed the statute to remove yourself to withdraw successfully. Um, then maybe you have a duty to notify the police because mm -hmm. you were a conspirator and you withdrew. That would be a little bit dicier if you don't report that to the police. But without coming to an agreement in the bar, they cannot assume, based on you being within earshot, that you were a co-conspirator or that you were in agreement. Mm -hmm. It's just as likely that you were in agreement with them as that you were going to call the police as soon as they left, and they don't know which one. Do you have cases like that? Do you have cases where they tried to force that agreement on that bartender, let's say? Yes. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, and it's hard to know. There are always three sides to the story, yours, mine, and the truth. But I do have, you know, boat cases, which happens frequently, where the Coast Guards will pick up a ship coming in that's got a bunch of dope on it, mm -hmm. secreted into different tanks and whatever. Not every crewman knows of the dope on the boat. Mm -hmm. Everyone is charged with it, though, until they can determine that I was not involved in this conspiracy. And they would do that through the statements of other co-defendants or through, you know, the statement of the defendant that's charged and say, hey, I didn't know anything about this. Um, you may want to talk to these guys. This was the captain, and they investigated, trace it down that way. So it happens. You, as, a, as an attorney, when you see a case coming in and the case is a conspiracy, how does that make you feel? Defeated. Uh, out of the gate. Yes. And do you even want to represent this person? Yes, uh, even more so. Yes. Uh -huh. As a defense attorney, I don't want the sure thing cases. I want the cases for the people that need help. And the people that need help are the ones that really have the cards stacked against them, like these co-conspirators. Um, 
they need me. They need somebody to help show them, you know, how they can get around this conspiracy or how they can help themselves out of these in, intense sentencing guidelines. So yeah, I absolutely want to take a conspiracy case. Um, they're tough cases to take, but they deserve the best defense. Ah, it's amazing, man. It's amazing. You know, so, I, well, okay. So how do you feel about conspiracy as far as like, how do we change this? Is it Does it belong in the system? Does it belong in the criminal system? No, it absolutely does not belong in the criminal system. Um, I believe that conspiracy is a catch-all offense that particularly the feds will use when they don't... Stacks the deck. Yeah, absolutely stacks the deck. It, it, the sentencing guidelines on a conspiracy are astronomical because if we are involved in a conspiracy and you're holding, you know, 0.5 bag of coke and your kingpin above you is holding five keys, you're going to be responsible for those five keys too. And that is outrageous to me. Um, but it's a catch-all because they can't, they can't attribute his dope to you without the conspiracy. And that's why it's, it's unjust to me. I think we should all be held accountable for our own criminal conduct. But the criminal conduct of my neighbor, whether or not I knew about it, I should not be held accountable for. We are all our own people. And it's really the job of law enforcement to go get my neighbor. It's not my job. I'm not an agent of law enforcement. So the conspiracy really, I think, is just it's casting a wide net to get criminals that may not otherwise have been caught up in the system. I think it's worth noting for your listeners and just for the general public, we all commit crimes, right? We have all committed crimes, all of us in our daily lives. We do it. We run a red light. We run a stop sign. People smoke pot when they're not supposed to, whatever the case may be. Just because you commit a crime does not make you a criminal, but the conspiracy statute seeks to make that a reality. Yeah, well, um, I appreciate your time, Court. Um, I'd like to do this at least once a month, hopefully, I if, I, if I can get like some listeners that um, maybe send in requests as far as, hey, listen, what does this charge mean or anything like that? Yeah. Um, or just, just the temperature of what's going on, because I really want to tie in, again, what's going on in the prison system, right, and the laws yeah. that we have to what's going on in the world today. What's yeah. going on in, in our streets today is, yeah. is attributed a lot to as you say, conspiracy. Yeah. They're able to go in and essentially they're looking for one man, but instead of taking that one man, they're taking 40 to 50 people right. out of a small block. And this is happening almost once a month, twice a month in these same communities. Yeah. And they're all low-income communities, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, we don't see we don't see the feds going into, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, some, some high-end, you they're know. They're not going to Mar-a-Lago. They're not going to Mar-a-Lago, huh? Mm -mm. Mm. Yep. And that's, you know, that's something that we need to talk about in another segment, too, yeah. is the, the criminal reforms that need to happen and that should be happening. Well, absolutely, because I want to figure out how can we dismantle conspiracy as in, in, the, in the criminal aspect. It has to. The, the, it has to be reformed. It's got to be a constitutionality challenge and that it's overbroad and it's vague. It's, that's, that's what I think it has and it to gives be. And no, it gives no chance to defend. Yeah. And... And it has to be that the general public cannot be put on notice. Just like you said, how much of the general public knows about conspiracy, the general public has to be put on notice of what crimes they could be held accountable for. And if they don't know that they could be held accountable for coming to an agreement with somebody, because it is that vague of a statute, um, that is unconstitutional. That's unconstitutionally vague and overbroad because we're not adequately put on notice. Well, let's do it, man. Let's get this thing thrown out, man. Tear down the hierarchy. Let's get it. All right, well, it's been a pleasure. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Um, this is something, again, that really needs to, to be brought into focus and, and brought out. So yeah. I'm going to talk to you again. You take care. Stay safe. All right, you too. Thank you. All right, thank you. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, that was a great, great conversation. A lot to unload and it's a lot to unpack and, and hopefully over time the discussion will continue and will go down many many paths I'm going to be having hopefully so many people on the show where this type of discussion is going to, to be occurring the thing about conspiracy that I really want to drill home and for my listeners to understand is that this can happen to anyone 
right? This You could get caught up in any situation because of emotional decisions. This is where the mental health aspect ties into things. Because of emotional decisions, you can be tied into life-changing occurrences. And we have to know that. We have to understand that I'm, I'm navigating my life through emotional decisions and that's, that's egregious, that's, that's a very pernicious thing to do because there's no thought in emotion. The, the, the only thing that comes from emotion is reaction. So we're, we're living very, very reactive lives and it's, it's putting us in harm's way constantly. And we teach our children to live reactive lives. And, and the cycle is just continuing and continuing. And conspiracy feeds off that. And, and the example that I gave was the guy sitting on the car pointing to the dope spot, to the two undercover detectives. Now, we don't know the emotional state of that kid. That kid at that time could just be sitting in that car. He could be on his phone arguing with his girlfriend about her cheating or him cheating or, or, or whatever the circumstance. But this kid is, is we don't even know what emotional state he's in. And as these two people come up, whatever state that he's in, he just points to get the people away from him. There, there, there's even a slight odd chance that the kid don't even know anything about no dope spot. He's just pointing and just saying something to get this guy away from him. Yeah, yeah, whatever, man, two blocks down. But see, what happens with conspiracy now is because this kid did that, he's now responsible for the whole operation. He's tied into the whole operation. So what that does is that takes away that emotional element that that kid was in. And it automatically places him into a criminal aspect. And because of conspiracy, this is how what we see going on now is happening. Cops busting open doors, killing people that wasn't even involved or didn't think that they were involved. No knock warrants. Cops rushing in with the mentality of arresting everybody or killing everybody. Probably vice versa. And that's what conspiracy does. Is it, it creates a mindset so now this kid isn't looked upon as just some kid who uh, is ignorant, didn't know any better, and just made a stupid emotional choice to help two individuals find, you know, score some dope. He's not looked upon like that. Now with conspiracy, he's looked upon as a, as a master plotter, as a person involved in some deep schematical uh, scheme to, to, you know, to to beat the government. That's what conspiracy does. He's not looked upon as, as, as just an individual that, that just did a small egregious act. He's looked upon as a co-conspirator. So now when these cops are doing these raids, they're not going in there with the mindset that this is just a 17-year-old kid that did some mindless, stupid thing. No, he's a co-conspirator of an operation that had that was pushing major kilos into the city and there's murders tied to it. So that means that this, this boy is probably armed and dangerous. So be aware when you go in the house. Remember, your life matters. Your life comes first. At the end of the day, you want to go home. This is the mentality that's put into the cops as they're getting ready you know, to do this raid. And bad things happen. So hopefully, hopefully because of this discussion that we can open up and we can, we, you know, we have to spread the news and we have to get people involved in these discussions. There's a lot of good discussions going on. You know, there's a lot of good podcasts out there. There's a lot of good discussions going on, but I still am not hearing the discussion about the root. And for me, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I can get some help. But for me, the root is the criminal justice system. 
to me, that's where it all started. It all started, if you go back to the Emancipation, the 13th Amendment, that is when we started using our prison structure as an agenda other than rehabilitation, confining the, the prisoner. There was an agenda behind it now, and that agenda has continued to grow. And it has been, you know, it's been continued, it's been allowed to grow because of the veil that, for which it sits up under. Nobody cares about prisoners. Nobody cares about criminals. They deserve what they get. We don't even want them to come home. That's the narrative that I'm, I'm out to set to, to change. We have to change that narrative. Because the only true change is going to come from the American people. And the only way that that's going to come is to turn our prisoners into uh, some sort of compassion. We, we have to start having compassion for these people. Not just, not just us who are involved, who we have loved ones that are locked away, but just your American blue-collar, hard-working citizen. That is when, when, when the topic of, of reform comes up, that's who has to be the one who says, you know what, this system needs to change. We have to reach those people. So if you have loved ones in prison, I, I really feel for you. I know your pain. I know, I know the pain on both sides. But it's not you I'm trying to reach. You already understand. I'm trying to reach the people that don't understand. I'm here to debate. I'm here, I'm here to do whatever it is. Come with me whatever you got. Tell me why I'm wrong. Because I'm here for enlightenment. I'm here to grow. I'm here to understand. As a human being trying to further my bloodline, trying to further my existence, and trying to further my spirit and get closer to God, I'm trying to understand how humanity is, is processing and thinking the way that it is. So I'm all up for it. I'm up for any discussion. My only knowledge is my experience. I'm not scholarly. I'm not claiming to, to, to be a genius or to have the solutions to every problem. But I do feel like I'm, I do know what I'm talking about when it comes to this topic right here because unfortunately this has been my life. This is what I know. This is what my experience is. And this is where I know I can help. So I feel like it's my duty as a human being to voice my opinion. And if my opinion is wrong, I'm welcome and humble enough. All I do ask is that you understand the scope of this of this show and that's for truth so when you bring your truth also bring your facts opinions are opinions and I welcome them all but I'm going to see them for what they are when you come with facts well I can't I can't dispute facts I can't deny facts so let's keep the show positive let's keep the show clean when I mean clean, I mean respectful. You're gonna hear me swear. I'm gonna have people on here swearing. You know, we're not every show may be about politics. I may be with some some people just hanging out. So keep it clean, keep it positive, keep it love. The point of this show is to bring people together, not to separate. The government divides us. We need people to come together and understand. I challenge all my listeners to listen before you form an opinion about anything. Listen to what the person is saying as it, as it could possibly be true. Do your own due diligence, do your own research. Find out your own facts before you come and you know before you come and present your case, you know. So Man, I really, really appreciate y'all tuning in. I really appreciate y'all listening. I hope you enjoy this, and I hope this continues to grow. I love each and every one of y'all. I want to try to help y'all bring your loved ones home. So keep the peace. Keep it moving forward. Stay positive.
Do not let negativity bring you down. If somebody's trying to pull you off your star square, then you let them know that this is this is the devil's work. This person is trying to pull you off your square. Do not let anybody affect you or your day. Until the next time, peace. I'm out. I love y'all. Be safe. Wear your mask.